Well, Lamar, you were right. That is a great golf course. Best of all, it was so pretty out there. I mean, I could have just enjoyed being out there in the beauty of nature. It's so relaxing and peaceful, especially after I stopped hooking all my drives in the wrong fairway. <laughs> I hear you. Well, I'm glad you thought it was worth the drive, Bill. Uh, I, too, enjoyed being out there. I was frustrated with some bad shots as well, but then that's part of the game. Even given that, I like being out there. You know, snow skiing up in the mountains does the same thing for me. The beauty of nature really often makes me feel closer to God than being in church. Really? I thought you didn't believe in God. Well, now, Bill, even though I uh, I have had my doubts about the existence of God sort of intellectually, down deep inside, I've really known in my heart that there must be a God. And then uh, our discussion on the way out here today was really helpful in uh, helping me address some of those intellectual issues, and I do appreciate it. And I appreciate the way you made it possible for me to ask those questions. Uh, At this point, I can buy the existence of God, and I can also accept that uh, God created the heavens and the earth. But I tell you, I can't buy that he really necessarily has any ongoing role in the world today. It seems to me that he probably just uh, wound it up sort of like a clock and is letting it run, and uh, he's watching it from a distance and... uh, For the most part, it comes out right, but not always. It's really the part about miracles, the notion that God intervenes in some of our lives today and has periodically at times in history uh, stepped in and done things miraculous. That's a bit hard for me to swallow. Well, you sure have plenty of company on that position. God wound the clock or lit the fuse for the Big Bang, and then went inactive. Uh, sounds a lot like uh, Jefferson's philosophy. Exactly. I'm, I'm an admirer of Thomas Jefferson's on a lot of subjects, and his position on that makes a lot of sense to me. I don't claim to be an expert, but as I understand it, he actually wrote what's called the Jefferson Bible, where he included the parts, the, the good principles and the teachings and examples that he found very useful in life, but he just basically took out all reference to miracles Once he had done that, he said, now we've got a good book. Well, here's a question I've thought about a lot. If there is a God, which you say you basically believe that there's a God. Yes, yes, I can go with that. All right. If there is a God who can act, then acts of God are possible. If God exists, he could interact with the universe if he wanted to. I mean, wouldn't that at least be a possibility? It seems to me that that's the first question. Yeah, I suppose so. That makes sense. He could tinker with it if he wanted to. Yes, absolutely. It seems to me that there's nothing that would keep him from doing that. Have you ever heard the story about the flower, the dog, the man, and God? The flower, the dog, the man, and God. I've heard a lot of stories, and I do enjoy them, but I don't think I've heard that one. (laughs) Well, for the sake of the analogy, you have to assume that these characters can communicate. Here goes. A flower and a dog were standing out in the meadow, and the dog says to the flower, Boy, it's getting hot out here. I think I'm going to trot over into the shade. Flower says, you can't trot over into the shade. you got to bloom where you're planted. Dog says, what do you mean I can't trot in the shade? I'm out of here. So he trots over into the shade, and Flower says, wow, that was a miracle. Well, it would have been a miracle if the flower had trotted over into the shade, but it wasn't a miracle for the dog to do that. A little while later, the dog hears a call from his master, and master tells him they're going hunting. And his tail starts to wagon. The man says, before we do, I'm just going to check the newspaper and see what the weather's going to be. dog says, you can't find anything out from a piece of paper. The man says, of course I can. I do it all the time. Well, for once, the weather report was accurate, and the dog was amazed. And the dog said, wow, that's a miracle. Now, again, it would have been a miracle if the dog had read the newspaper and learned something. 
but it wasn't a miracle for the man. Well, they're out there hunting. Man shoots a bird and lands in the water, and water's about 35 degrees. And the man and the dog start an argument about who's going to get wet and go get that bird. I guess so. <laughs> well, all of a sudden, God pops up and says, nobody needs to get wet. I'll walk on top of the water and get the bird. The man says, you can't do that. You can't walk on top of water. God says, oh, really? He walks on top of the water, brings back the bird, and the man says, wow, that's a miracle. Well, the point of the analogy is that it would be a miracle for you and me, but if there's a God, it would be something not only within his capacity, it would be easy and normal and natural, as natural as a dog trotting into the shade. And so the idea that, yes, there's a God, but he couldn't do miracles, I don't follow the logic of it. Well, I can see where you're going with this, Bill, but if if God performed miracles, wouldn't those miracles violate the uh, very laws of nature that he set up in the first place when he when he created the universe? Uh, like a rock, when you drop it, it falls down. It'd be a miracle if you dropped it and it fell up, and then that would be a violation of the law of nature, wouldn't it? Well, I guess the issue I have would be with the word violation. C.S. Lewis came up with a fascinating analogy of the relationship between the laws of nature and miracles. All right, here goes. Imagine that some Martians came to observe life on this planet. They had teams to investigate various aspects of life in the city. So one little group was instructed to unravel the mystery of the intersection. In other words, how do all these vehicles come from all these different directions and, and yet, for the most part, manage to navigate the intersection without accident? Well, as they begin to take in data, they... They recognized the connection between a traffic light that was in the middle and the flow of traffic. When the traffic light was red in one direction, it was green or yellow in the other. Green or yellow meant you could go, red that you had to stop. So they'd taken in data from thousands of cars using sophisticated computers and were kind of patting themselves on the back. They had cracked the code. They now knew the law of the intersection. Traffic was controlled by the traffic light. Well, just about that time... A vehicle with a loud waving noise and a red flashing light on top approached the intersection. Vehicle stopped in all four directions while this vehicle went right through the red light. The Martians were dismayed. They felt like the law that they had discovered had been violated and, and maybe wasn't true in spite of all the data. One of the Martians, as it turned out, followed the vehicle and found out there was a fire and found out that lives were saved as a result of that vehicle that went through the red light. As they began to put the information together with all the data that they had compiled before, they realized that the law of the intersection was valid. It's just that that law could be superseded at certain times for certain important reasons. And so it seems to me that rather than thinking of a miracle as a violation of the laws of nature, it could be seen simply as superseding those laws at certain times and for certain reasons. But I don't see miracles happening now. It seems like they should be happening all the time now if they happen all the time in biblical history. But it's important to know, Lamar, that the Bible doesn't portray miracles as constant occurrences. You don't have a miracle a minute in the Bible. In fact, there are hundreds of years in biblical history where there are no recorded miracles. They occurred at a few significant periods of time for very particular reasons. Okay, if I understand what you're saying... God could do a miracle if he felt like it, and if he did, it wouldn't necessarily contradict the law of nature. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Okay, I follow your logic, but just because God, if there is one, could do a miracle, that doesn't 
necessarily prove that he has done miracles. Is this where you have to take your leap of faith and just kind of step out there? Remember now, I'm looking for evidence of a miracle having happened, not just the theoretical possibility that might have occurred. Well, Your Honor, I would like to submit the resurrection of Jesus Christ as Exhibit A in the New Testament case for miracles. Well, that does seem to be a big miracle, and I have to admit it's a hard one to swallow. If somebody died, was dead for three days... Yes, and if if we could demonstrate that that one happened... Then the rest of them don't seem quite so big, like turning water to wine, etc. That's exactly right. H.L. Mencken, an acid-tongued atheist, actually said it quite well. He said something like, either Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't. If he did, then Christianity becomes plausible. If he didn't, then it's sheer nonsense. Yeah, well, I, I agree with Macon. If if that miracle could be demonstrated, the case for Christianity is pretty well made. Well, actually, the New Testament says the same thing. It says that if the resurrection of Jesus didn't occur, then Christians are to be pitied for holding to a naive, empty, and meaningless faith. Okay, I'm all ears, but now if we're talking about evidence, I'm talking about really strong evidence that is intellectual appealing, makes sense, and is convincing on its own merits, that courtroom kind of stuff. Fair enough. There's a professor named Simon Greenleaf who taught at Harvard Law School around the turn of the century, and he was an ardent skeptic of Christianity. He used to poke jabs at some of his students and what he saw as the naivete of their faith. At one point, he was challenged to apply what he knew about legal evidence to the case for the resurrection. He had already by this time written some volumes on circumstantial evidence. As a result of his investigation of the resurrection, he did a 180-degree turnaround. He became convinced that Christ had actually come back from the dead, and he wrote a book about the evidence. Now, just because he was a skeptic and brilliant and trained in the field of legal investigation, I understand that doesn't prove that the resurrection actually happened. But it does indicate that there's a tremendous amount of evidence that most people have never examined. Like what? Well, there are three major pieces of evidence that we have to deal with from the New Testament— and also from some non-biblical sources as well, like the ancient historians Josephus and Tacitus. Now, the the first major piece of evidence is the, the fact of the empty tomb. The second one is the appearance of Jesus to his disciples after his death and burial. And the third one is the remarkable and radical change in the lives of his disciples. So it seems to me that These are some very substantial lines of evidence that demand attention. Okay, well, let's take that first one, uh, the empty tomb. Couldn't the disciples have really stolen the body of Jesus? I mean, it seems to me that if a bunch of my friends and I are hanging around with uh, this charismatic individual and then uh, the government and authority, in this case the Romans, crucify him through their method and, and he dies... There could be an opportunity here, and that would create a motive uh, for us to make ourselves pretty important. I could say to him, hey, let's steal the body and let's move it out of the place, and then we can claim that he rose for the dead because, after all, I think he had predicted that he would. So it seems to me that the disciples had the motive and maybe the opportunity, and uh, probably they're the ones that stole the body and then fabricated the whole story. I think it's pretty natural to wonder about the possibility of the disciples stealing the body. However, the disciples were frightened to death with the possibility of confrontation with the authorities. Some of them bragged that they wouldn't betray Jesus if it came down to a fight, but every one of them did. They fled. Basically, they acted like cowards. If they stole the body, 
and then went around preaching that Christ was the Messiah who had risen from the dead, that means they knowingly and intentionally brought persecution on themselves. It's a complete disconnect with everything we know about them. What is all of a sudden going to make a group of cowards turn around and invent something that's going to get them all killed? It just doesn't make sense. Their motivation, it seems, was to avoid trouble, not create it. In addition to this, a Roman guard was stationed at the tomb. They had a one- to two-ton boulder rolled in front of the grave. The seal of Rome was then placed on top of the boulder, which was a a psychological barrier set in effect. You touch this, we're going to get you. Well, this group of scared, cowering, and demoralized individuals stealing the body, overcoming heavily armed guards, moving the stone, defying Rome, inviting torture and death, it's hard to swallow when you look at all the pieces. In fact, my conclusion is, if if the body was stolen, we can be sure that it wasn't the disciples who did it. Well, uh, I have to admit, when you put it like that, that is uh, pretty convincing. Those are legitimate points that I hadn't considered before. Well, in, in addition to that, I think it's pretty obvious that not only would the disciples not have stolen the body, but it's pretty obvious that the Romans and the Jewish authorities didn't steal it either. At that time, well, later on, they cared a lot, but at that time, the Romans didn't care. And the Jewish religious leaders were passionate about bringing this Jesus movement to an end. Well, that's what the crucifixion was all about, I guess. Absolutely. And a missing body would have fanned the flame that they were trying to douse. All they would have needed to do to end Christianity was to produce the body of Jesus. If they could have produced the body, they would have produced the body. Well, that's definitely food for thought. But, Bill, what if Christ never really died? In other words, uh, maybe he went through this, uh, this process and uh, just kind of fainted on the cross and then later after he was placed in the tomb and it was cool and he was horizontally revived. Okay, let's review the scenario. He was whipped with 40 lashes and, and those lashes literally ripped the flesh off of the person's back. Okay, he was whipped with 40 lashes. He was so weakened by the beating and the blood loss that he couldn't carry the cross. Then they nailed him to the cross, and he hung there for hours, a typical Roman crucifixion. The executioner standing there pronounced him dead. Now, normally soldiers in in a crucifixion, after too much time wore on, would break the victim's legs so that they couldn't hold themselves up and be able to continue breathing. In other words, basically, when they wanted to end this, they wanted to get on with something else, when they wanted to bring it to an end, they would break their legs so that they would collapse and suffocate. The executioner said in this instance that it wasn't necessary to break Jesus' bones since he was already dead. Finally, for good measure, he stuck a spear in his side and blood and water came out, a further indication of death. Well, I understand, but but what if he wasn't actually completely dead? He just appeared to be. Well, remember, all these really are clear indications of death, but If he wasn't all dead, just mostly dead, as you say, putting him in a cool, damp tomb and wrapping him in gummy spices is hardly the medical procedure that would be recommended to revive somebody. Actually, it probably would have finished him off. Now, if he wasn't dead, he was nearly dead. And now we have to imagine that in this state, he pushed over a two-ton stone, frightened a group of seasoned, hardened soldiers. And by the way, they were threatened with capital punishment if they let a prisoner escape. Then he walked a couple of miles on pierced and wounded feet, and finally, 
convinced his disciples that he had defeated death. Now talk about a miracle. Well, maybe the idea that he only fainted, that he never actually died, isn't so plausible after all. But what about when he allegedly reappeared to his disciples? You know, that was the second piece of evidence that you mentioned. Maybe the disciples wanted it to happen so badly that they just imagined it, even though it did seem very real. Uh, You know, that they were hallucinating when they saw Jesus. People do hallucinate. That does happen, you know. That's true. But when you think about what a hallucination is, the characteristics of a hallucination, it seems that those characteristics don't match up well at all to the description we have of the appearances of Christ to the disciples. For instance, hallucinations tend to come to somebody who is anticipating and, and dwelling on a certain event, like, like a mother whose only child's gone off to war, and every night she envisions him walking through the door. She is desperately eager for her son's return, and one night she imagines him walking through the door. But the disciples weren't anticipating this event. They'd gone back to their fishing. They'd given up. They were beaten. The gig was up as far as they were concerned. I see. Now, another thing about hallucinations is that they also tend to have a, a sameness to them, a, a real similarity. But in the accounts of Christ's appearances, there was a great deal of variety. He talked to a woman. He talked to a man. He spoke with individuals. He walked and talked with a couple people on the road to Emmaus. He talked to the disciples in a group. He appeared at one point to as many as 500 people. Really? 500 people at one time? I thought it was uh, individuals or groups of two or three at most. Well, that is an important number because hallucinations don't appear to groups. They appear to individuals. You don't have group hallucinations. Hmm, interesting point. Well, in another instance, Jesus wanted to make sure they knew he wasn't just a ghost or an apparition. So he asked them to give him some food, and he actually ate it in front of them. He ate food with a real physical body. In fact... He invited Thomas to touch him and even put his hands on him and examine the wounds. That would have been doubting Thomas. That's doubting Thomas, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, another thing about hallucinations, they tend to recur over long periods of time. Whereas these appearances of Christ took place for 40 days, and that was the end. Nobody ever reported seeing him again. So the appearances of Christ to his disciples clearly contradict the idea that they were merely hallucinations. I think the evidence points to these witnesses actually seeing what they said they saw. Indeed. Fair enough. Let's move on to the third piece of evidence, the disciples themselves. That be okay? You bet. The fact that they were willing to die after the resurrection really by itself doesn't prove too much to me in view of what I observe uh, even in the world today. Uh, there have been a lot of people, even in our lifetimes, willing to die for what they believe. You mean like the Muslim that straps a bomb to his body? Or the guy that uh, drove the truck under the building in Saudi Arabia or over in Beirut when the uh, Marine barracks was bombed. Uh, The kamikaze pilots during World War II. I mean, they all died for what they believed in. So what's different here? Well, the point is not that the disciples were the only people willing to die for a cause. The point is that the disciples demonstrated cowardice before the resurrection And then there was a radical change that ended up with 11 of the 12 of them dying a violent death for proclaiming this about Jesus coming back from the dead. Now, if the resurrection didn't happen, how do you explain these former cowards willingly facing hardship and death? In addition, while people do die for causes, 
they only die for causes they believe are just and true causes. Now, you and I may disagree with the Arab suicide bombers. We may think they're crazy. It was wrong to bomb the building. Not only not good and noble, but absolutely reprehensible. Absolutely. But the point is they believed in what they were doing. Now, if the disciples had been involved in some kind of hoax regarding the resurrection of Christ, they obviously then knew it was a lie. People don't die for something they know to be a lie. When it gets right down to the point of execution and they're saying, we're going to kill you unless you admit the truth about this, that's when people save themselves. Chuck Colson said that it was less than 24 hours after they were caught that the Watergate conspirators started ratting on each other in order to save their own necks. Well, I guess I always did think about these uh, guys standing around uh, deciding to perpetrate this hoax on humanity in order to build themselves up to a position of power and influence. To do that, they would have to keep telling the story over and over. Sort of, this is our story and we're sticking to it. That's it. I have to agree that as you prepare to kill them, particularly a very painful and arduous and torturous death, that there might be a tendency for one or two of them to start uh, owning up to the fact that the story's not true if it's not true. Absolutely. Somebody's going to squeal. Yeah, I have to admit that does make sense. That's in line with my understanding of humanity. Boy, you've given me a lot to think about. Uh, I'm still not sure I buy the resurrection story, but I think now that maybe my skepticism was a bit naive and uninformed. Well, um, I've really enjoyed talking about this. Uh, We're just a about to get to your house, and I have to be at a dinner in about 30 minutes. But um, let me recommend a book that was real helpful to me on this. Uh, It's by Josh McDowell, and it's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It has about 70 pages of detailed evidence and reasoning uh, about the resurrection. And if you're interested, I'll be glad to lend you my copy and see what you think about it. Yeah, I'm very much interested. I'd love to uh, swing by and get it before the weekend if I could. I think it'd be helpful for me to see this on paper and have a chance to reflect on it. Uh, And then maybe we could meet for lunch next week and uh, I could discuss it with you further. Would that be okay? That'd be terrific. But, Bill, let me ask you one more question before we stop. Why is it so important to you that this be true? Does it really matter that much whether miracles have actually happened? Yes. uh, As a matter of fact, it matters greatly to me. Because if God has never intervened in human history— if he cannot or simply has not, then it seems to me we have little or no way of knowing that the God who created the universe really cares about us, that our lives have any purpose, that there's any ultimate accountability for our actions, or that there are any truly transcendent principles to live our lives by, or that there's any hope of us continuing on after this life is over. But if God has done miracles— If he has stepped into human history, then the Bible could be true. Jesus could be who he claimed to be. And at the same time, we could have real meaning and purpose and values, forgiveness and hope in our lives. Wow. I can see that this is uh, a lot more than a merely academic discussion. There really is a lot at stake here. You've made a good case that if there is a God, that he certainly could do miracles. Now I guess I need to weigh the evidence carefully to see if I think that he has done any miracles. And I guess the case for the resurrection is as good a place to start as any. I couldn't agree more, Lamar. Wow, Bill. This has really been a great afternoon. I told you I had 
couple of things I wanted to talk to you about, but I had no idea that it would lead to this kind of discussion. I really appreciate it. And uh, I, I just want to say again how much I've enjoyed the, the whole afternoon, the drive out, the beautiful weather, the uh, beautiful location. And I especially enjoyed your hooks into the other fairway. <laughs> well, I didn't enjoy that part, but I sure agree with you about the rest of it. Uh, this really has been a great day. Yeah. Great idea to come on out here, Lamar. Thanks.